Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He was the first man to win each of tennis's Grand Slam events in one year. His backhand is still regarded as one of the best ever. And the original reason he played the game was simply because his older brother challenged him to enter a local event. The result? He became the number one tennis player in the world. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of one of the greatest players in the history of tennis, Don Budge. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. As always, thanks for joining me on this journey where we talk about some of the greatest figures in the history of sports, athletes who, for whatever reason, are not at top of mind, guys who rose to the top of their professions but were overshadowed by others, or guys whom time has forgotten. And today, we're going to talk with a terrific writer, Marshall John Fisher, about one of the greatest tennis players to ever play the game, a guy who, probably because of the state of tennis today, time has forgotten, Don Budge. And what a perfect time to talk about Budge, because right now, the first of tennis's 2018 Grand Slam events is underway, the Australian Open. You see, this is the 80th anniversary of the year that Don Budge became the first and ultimately just one of two players to ever win each of tennis's four Grand Slam events in one year. Now, before we get into today's show, I just want to let you know that Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible is a great way to enjoy your favorite books, especially when you're on the run. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. I also invite you to visit the Sports Forgotten Heroes Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash sportsfh. Every day there's a sports quiz, information on upcoming podcasts, historical notes about sports, the heroes we talk about, and there's a lot more coming too. It's also a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Again, that's patreon.com backslash sportsfh. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for our page on Facebook or visit Sports Forgotten Heroes on the web at sportsfh.com. You know, there was a time when tennis was must-watch TV, especially men's tennis. Back in the 70s and 80s, turning on the TV to watch guys like Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, Bjorn Borg, it was captivating. It was exciting, one-on-one, mano-a-mano, exciting, edge-of-your-seat stuff. Today, however, I bet most of you can't name the top American talent. Why is this? I wish I had the answer. I bet the United States Tennis Association wishes tennis was as watched now as it was then. But as popular as tennis was in the 70s and 80s, it was even more popular or held in even higher regard back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even the 60s. And one of the game's most popular stars was a guy named Don Budge. He was the man. He had a backhand that players of today would love to possess. And his forehand, well, that was something to behold as well. And in 1938, Budge did the incredible. During the era in which he played, tennis was largely an amateur game. That is, the game's biggest tournaments, and that includes Wimbledon and what is now known as the U.S. Open, was only open 
the amateurs. And Budge was the best of them. And in 1937, Don Budge won the final two Grand Slam events of the year. But he wasn't winning money and he could have turned pro, which was also a much different game than it is today. And later in this podcast, we'll talk a little more about how the professional game differed back then as opposed to what it is today. So Budge could have turned pro, but instead opted to stay an amateur so he could represent his country again in the Davis Cup and do something no one had ever done, not even the great Bill Tilden. And that's when each of tennis's four Grand Slam events in one year. And here to talk more about Don Budge and his remarkable career is Marshall John Fisher, who is the author of A Terrible Splendor, a terrific book, which, by the way, is also available on Audible, about one of the greatest tennis matches, if not the greatest tennis match ever played, a Davis Cup encounter between Don Budge and Gottfried von Krom of Germany. Marshall, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so happy you could join me today. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Hey, so tell me about your connection to tennis and what you love about the game so much. Yeah, well, I, um, I grew up in Miami and um, started playing at a very young age, about eight years old. And I've just been a pretty serious player ever since. I mean, I played junior tennis tournaments in Florida and... Uh, I've been living in the Northeast for 30 more or more years. Um, still play a lot of tennis, and uh, it's just always been a major interest of mine, you know. And um, I, I, you know, I haven't didn't set out to become a tennis writer or anything like that, but it's something about the sport keeps bringing me back uh, to write about it because there's so many good stories involved. Interesting. That that that's a that's a great segue into this next question I have for you, which is. You know, I'm a huge fan of sports, in particular sports history. I love to talk about the greats of the game, whether they're known or unknown. I think one sport that gets overlooked today is tennis. But tennis has such a rich history, and at one time, it might have actually been the most popular spectator sport in the United States. What was it about the game that people loved so much and why do you think we've lost, at least on television, our passion for the game? Yeah, um, well, it's true that, um, and I think especially back in the time of when my book takes place in the 30s, uh, it was a much bigger, well, it was a much bigger spectator sport, although it was mainly just the, the, the major tournament, and above all, the Davis Cup, which has lost a lot of right. its appeal, I guess. Although at that time, Davis Cup was a huge um, sporting event. And then when I was a kid, tennis had a big uh, resurgence in, as a spec, as a um, participant sport, as well as spectator. I mean, the tennis boom of the '70s, uh, everyone was playing tennis, and it was uh, it was just extremely popular. And yeah, that has dropped off. Although I guess the U.S. Open is still, I don't know, the biggest spectator event. I think mm-hmm. I'm not sure. In some, in some ways, it's the biggest something. <laughs> I know the U.S. Open is a hugely successful event, but aside from that, people aren't that interested in tennis. Um, um, but yeah, uh, uh, but the thing is, uh, about tennis is that it was such a big sport back then, I think partly because of the one-on-one nature, mm-hmm. um, similar, similar to boxing, um, you know, this great, great contests between one person and another person. And, um, it was something everyone could do to some extent, right. as opposed to a lot of sports, you know, you can go out. So it was a, always a big, uh, participant sport as well. Um, but there's just so much drama in a tennis match, uh, as I say, this one-on-one battle, and it's a great uh, athletic contest as well as a mental contest. Right. You know, uh, again, speaking speaking from a television or a spectator perspective, I think arguably women's tennis is a more popular sport to watch today than men's tennis. And I think that's prob at least here in the U.S., and I think that's probably because the U.S. hasn't had a male win a Grand Slam event since Andy Roddick won the U.S. Open in 2003. But there yeah. was a time, there was a time when the U.S. men were the most dominant players in the game, and one of those dominant players was Don Budge. In fact, in 1938, 80 years ago, Don Budge did the unthinkable. 
He became the first player ever, and there's only been very few, a handful of guys, to win all four Grand Slam events in one year. He won the Australian Championships, the French Championships, Wimbledon, the U.S. Championships. Now, uh, before we get into it, a point of clarification for our listeners. At the time that Budge won the Grand Slam, professionals were not allowed in those tournaments, only amateurs. Thus, the Open era, as we know it today, didn't really start, I believe, until the French Open in 1968. Tell us about Don Budge. What made him so darned good, so much better than anyone else? Yeah, well, Don Budge was, um, he was just a a working-class kid out of Oakland, California. Uh, His dad drove a delivery truck (laughs) and um, lived in very modest neighborhood and um but he was just a great athlete and he uh grew up right next to a park bushrod park and uh they you know he started there was tennis courts there and his brother his older brother got into tennis and was a good player and and don would hang around and play with him and then when he wouldn't play with them anymore he would just hang around the courts and just play with anyone who would hit with him and he was just such a good athlete he became very good and uh it was almost on a challenge his brother called him lazy and said if he wasn't so lazy he could probably win the the uh, 14 and under championships uh, that were going about to take place in Northern California. And so he went out and played, you know, many hours a day for a couple of weeks and he went out and won that tournament. And that was the beginning. And, uh, you know, in those days, it wasn't such a uh, widespread network of, of uh, kids training, you know, <laughs> I mean, right. it's a lot different. And so just by being a great athlete and playing a lot, he was able to rise right up. And, you know, within a year, I think he was the California junior champion. Wow. Um, and he just he just shot up like a rocket um, up through the rankings. So he had and, this natural uh, ability for it as well. Oh yeah, yeah. He was a you know he loved all sports and his, his famous backhand in the tennis world. His backhand is famous as one of the greatest shots ever, and it was sort of modeled on the lefty baseball swing. Uh, had that sort of look to it, and that's how he had learned the backhand. Hmm. Um, so, but so he was an all sports player, but it certainly became one of the great tennis players. How dominant was he, especially in 1938? Not only did he win each of the four Grand Slam events, he won the final two the year before, 1937. Say so he won yeah. six in a row. Just how dominant was he? How much better yeah. was he than the players well, in, he was in, up in, against? In 37, when my book takes place, he was he just turned 21, and he just he just had risen up to become the world champion, which basically meant winning Wimbledon. At that time, if you won Wimbledon, you were considered the world champ because that mm. was that was the biggest tournament. And they didn't have you know computer rankings or anything. Right. They did have a they had various committees who would come up with world rankings. But um, so at 21, he became number one and uh, won Wimbledon and the U.S. Championships. Um, as as you say, it wasn't open then, so it wasn't called the U.S. Open. Um, and he won that big Davis Cup match that my book is about. But um, he. A lot of at that time, often the the when someone got to be number one, uh, they would be tempted by an offer to turn pro and actually make some money because until the late '60s, as you said, the most famous tennis players in the world didn't make a living at it. They they were amateurs. So Budge was offered a lot, <laughs> an awful lot of money at the end of '37 to turn pro, but he turned it down uh, for two reasons. One, he had promised to defend the Davis Cup the next year. And that was just a huge point of honor. Mm-hmm. And also, he had had this idea, which no one had ever talked about before, to see if he could win the four major tournaments in one year. Um, it was No one ever had referred to a Grand Slam before. Um, and that was a really hard it. thing to do to begin with. But then when you consider how they traveled back then to get to, to, get to yeah. Australia was not an easy Oh, yeah. Chore. Well, back then, most, most Americans didn't go down to Australia to play the Australian, in fact, or, or, any, or Europeans either. It was such a you know three week boat trip, um, but they were heading down. Um, I think they were heading down there anyway for a Davis Cup, and he decided to go down and make that the beginning of his campaign to uh, to try to win all four majors. But yeah, if you look if you look at the Australian Open draw, it wasn't there Open the Australian Championships draws back then. It was almost all Australians, so it wasn't quite the same. But uh, anyway, he he told his friend Gene Mako, his doubles partner, that he was going to try to do this. And well, he didn't announce it publicly or anything. And uh, he really was in 38, just uh, without question, the best player in the world. And he, so he won uh, won the Australian pretty easily and, and managed to win all four. And that became known as the Grand Slam. How did he 
sustain a living? How did he make a living? If you're playing amateur tennis, you're not being paid. So how right. was he able to do all this? Well, the players back then, had, they had, uh, you know, first of all, there was, I'm sure there were under-the-table payments you know, of some kind. Sure. Um, that that was sort of became famous in the 40s and 50s. That you know, They were actually being paid by the tournament promoters to show up, you know, to be in their tournament, even though it was, uh, you know, they weren't supposed to do that. But um, I'm, I don't think he was actually getting that way, way back in the 30s. But, you know, he was only 21, 20, he was 22 when he turned pro, so pretty young. And, of course, all expenses were paid, so he he rarely had to pay for a meal or, mm-hmm. or and certainly not for any travel. And a lot of the time he was traveling with the United States Davis Cup team, so, you know, everything was paid there. Um, but no, he didn't. You know, he didn't really make a living. He had a job, I and mean, a lot of them had jobs uh, in the off season, I guess, which back then would have been uh, between September and just uh, through the end of the year. Um, so they get a little, little job. So I think uh, sporting goods companies would give them little payments. You know, but they didn't. They certainly didn't make much money at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was more for the for the glory. And then you you know, at the age of twenty two or twenty five or whenever it was, you'd finally grow up and get a job. <laughs> yeah. The the let's paint a picture for a moment here. Mm-hmm. Just how big a star was Don Budge, regardless of sport? Who would you compare him to today, as far as mm-hmm. popularity is concerned? I mean, mm-hmm. tennis was a big deal back then, and if you were a winner in tennis, you were known. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there were fewer sports uh, in total. And that was one of the big ones. So yeah, he was a huge star. He was face was all over ads and then magazines and, and on radio. And uh, he was definitely a household word. No question about that. One of the aspects to Don's game that you've written about is how heavy a ball he hit. Explain yeah. that and how difficult it was for his opponents to play against. Yeah, well, he was a he's a big, big, strong guy, and he. He liked to use a big, a heavy racket. Um, at that, he used a 16-ounce racket, which um, compared to, I mean, today most rackets are 10 or 11 ounces. And even back then, though, I think 12-ounce was about a normal racket. So people couldn't believe that he was playing with this heavy thing and had a huge grip on it, four and seven-eighths inches around, which is, I don't know if, if you know, most people today play with a four and three-eighths, four and a half. Four and seven eighths is a very very big hmm. grip, and he even he even used no no leather grip on it. So it was just bare wood, which was very unusual in the '30s. Everyone had leather grips by then. Uh-huh. But um, he just swung that thing, and he hit it so hard that when 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 a, when you're playing against a great player who really hits the ball hard, it just feels heavy. It, 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 people call it a heavy ball, and so the, you know people would his opponents would say things like you know you know you try to come to net against Budge, and it's like you're volleying a piano, you know, because the ball would just come at you so hard. Sort of take the racket out of your hands. Uh huh. Was was that a natural aspect to his game, or was it something he worked on? I think it's just. I think it's just a. Um, it's just the fact that he hit the ball so hard. You know, <laughs> I think that's what they're trying to say when they say a heavy ball. Uh, and and of course, swinging with such a heavy racket makes it easier to hit harder. Uh, you, there are of course disadvantages, uh, especially. But he was strong enough that he could swing that thing around pretty quick and really nailed the ball was tennis really a world game back then tell me about what tennis was like back then oh yeah absolutely uh, maybe not as much as today um uh, but there were top players from all over um of course i guess less so than today i mean the, uh, the united states and england were pretty and france were pretty dominant um but there were great players on the world tour from uh as far away as japan and of course australia and um and from all the other countries, you know, Germany and, I mean, Poland had a great player. And, I mean, it, it was definitely an international sport, but I guess I would say less so than today. It was more concentrated in the, the bigger Western countries. Mm-hmm. So he gets into tennis, as you said, by virtue of a challenge from his brother, and he does really well. And I think yeah. early on in his career, he forges this relationship, a partnership with Gene Mako. How important was that? And if you can, tell us a little bit about Gene and how the two of them became such good friends. You know, Gene Mako was a, a, another great, really great athlete. <laughs> Just a natural uh, growing up in Los Angeles in the 30s. And he was considered to be the next great uh, prospect coming up out of California. Um, 
until Budge overtook him in the 18 and unders championships. Um, and, you know, Mako went on to have a, a great career, although mainly as a doubles player um, with Budge. They were the greatest doubles team in the world for a while. Mm-hmm. But they just became, they became buddies playing the junior tournaments together, and uh, they just got along real well. They, had, they liked to go see a lot of jazz wherever they were and have right. a good time together. Um, Mako had a big injury, I guess, that when he was young. They kind of uh, halted his tennis, his singles rise, but became a great, great doubles player. He even played a little uh, semi-pro basketball at one point, mm. and uh, and he was just an amazing athlete. But they together were their unbeatable doubles team. Was it important to have a partner like Gene Mako at the time, or did it even matter? Important uh, for like personally, or, or you mean in? Uh, yeah, I mean to have a friendship on the road and to have a a partner for doubles like that who you could always rely on. Yeah, well, I think it was. I mean, sure. I mean, the, the you know the Davis Cup was the most important thing, and so to have to have he needed such a great singles champion, you needed to have a great doubles team. So that was great for that, and I think for Budge, it was just wonderful to have your best friend traveling around with you, and um, they had a great time. That's for sure. And and the Davis Cup, which as we said earlier, or as you stated earlier, certainly is not nearly as big today as yeah, it was right. back then. I mean, that was just this huge event, uh, a yeah. yearly event. And it had quite an impact on Dodd Budge, especially when you consider he left school to be a Davis Cup player. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it was that was definitely the premier event in tennis. I mean, no one, you know, they still play the Davis Cup, and players get pretty excited to win it, but nothing like uh, it was back then. Uh, when they were leaving the U.S. for Europe that summer of 37, the, the Davis Cup coach had a press conference, and he told the reporters that if he thought playing Wimbledon would hamper, if he thought if any other players playing Wimbledon would hamper their chances of winning the Davis Cup, he'd keep them out of Wimbledon, you know, wow. <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, he didn't actually do that, but the, the point is that it was that was the big trophy, even more than Wimbledon, and that's what players talked about, and they often talked about how they were never so nervous as when playing for their country in the Davis Cup. And, uh, yeah, it was huge headlines for the Davis Cup and much, much different than it is today. Is it – would you say um... – Obviously, it's structured much differently because the Davis Cup is more of a world game. But if you had to compare it to something, would it be similar to that of perhaps the Ryder Cup? I guess so. But the, the Ryder Cup is just one week in a year. Is that right? Right. Or one, or one week. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I guess you could, you could compare it. And the, the funny thing about the Davis Cup is they haven't changed the uh, format you know, since it started in 1900 (laughs) you know it's still it's still the same thing with it there's a year-long draw so you play in different rounds at different times of the year Uh and it's it's always been the same format of uh two you have two singles players and one doubles team and you you know you play two singles matches the first day one doubles match the second day and then the third day you play the reverse singles and uh, so it's kind of interesting that it's just never been tampered with although People are always talking about how they need to change the format and make it into a one, one or two week a year thing, so that more players would play. But they've they've stuck to it. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, maybe sometime in the future you could come back. Uh, there's a particular match I'd love to talk to you about in regards to the Davis Cup, and we could also talk a little bit more about the history of the Davis Cup. Right. Yeah. Hey, obviously Don had a lot of natural ability, as we said, but natural ability is not always enough. So he sought out the help of a coach, Tom Stowe. Who was Tom and how did he affect Don's career and what did Tom get out of Don's success? Well, yeah, Tom Stowe was a, a pretty well-known uh, coach of, of the, the Berkeley, UC Berkeley team in California and uh, very well-known locally. And uh, he... He changed. Uh, he, made, he made the big change in Budge's game, which allowed him to uh, <laughs> kind of rise to the top. Which was that uh, going up on the hard courts of California, Budge had a, what they call the Western forehand. They still call it Western, which just means more of a topspin uh, grip with the racket turned over. Of course, now everybody, every single pro uses a Western, but even when I was a kid, it was a little bit unusual. And uh, back then, so much tennis was played on grass where the ball bounces low that uh, Stowe realized that for him to be a world-class player, he's going to have to change to an Eastern grip so he can pick up these low balls because 
when you have that racket turned way over, it's hard to pick up the low balls. And so he made that change. So he began hitting a flatter, harder ball and being able to adapt to grass more. And that was the main thing he did, uh, in addition to just training him really hard and getting him to believe that he was a champion. He could be a champion. How difficult he was a great is it, influence, yeah. How difficult is it to change your grip in tennis? I know that when we talk in terms of golf, yeah. they say changing your grip is a a process. It takes a while to change your grip, become comfortable with your grip, and then be able to rely on that grip to hit a good ball. Is it the same thing in tennis? How difficult is it? Well, I think, first of all, when you're still a kid or a teenager, it's a lot easier. And, uh, you know, any change you make feels completely terrible. But if you stick at it for a couple of weeks, it'll just become natural to you. It's interesting, though. I can't think of any uh, pro that's really changed his grip after being a world-class pro, you know, at least in my memory. So it's pretty unusual once you've gotten to that stage. Uh, but he was, you know, when I'm talking about when Budge was 17, 18, so um, he was still, I think, more more adaptable, and um, he was able to do it. And how did that affect his game? I mean, obviously he became a champion. Was that one of the – is that the key change that Stowe made, or was it a, a complete evolvement of his game? No, I think that was the main, the main change, although Stowe also, I think, gave him a different attitude, uh, made him believe that – you know, a lot of it, so much of it is mental, and he really convinced him that he could be a great player. And just, uh, but changing that grip allowed him to hit the ball a lot harder because it hit it with less spin and hit it harder. Back then, it was very different than today, where everyone hits with huge spin with the current uh, rackets and strings they use and the and the style. Back then, it was much more of a flat game. You could hit some spin; people would hit little topspin, little slice. But this enabled Budge to hit a nice hard flat ball, and. Um, and then the other thing he did was, I don't think he learned this from Stowe, but he figured out how to take the ball on the rise, which a lot of some of the greatest players would do. And so he became a very powerful attacking player, taking the ball early, hitting it hard and flat. Would you, would you switch your grip going back and forth from hard court to, to a grass court? Would, would Budge change his grip, go western to eastern? Or uh, yeah, once you question. get, you know, I never heard I never heard him say or anyone else talk about doing that. No, although I think you know, once you've got your grip set for your forehand, I think it's pretty hard to start changing grips. So no, I never heard anyone mention doing that. Hmm. Um, I think he was pretty happy with the new one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even on the hard had, had a little success with it for yeah. Stowe. That success meant a lot to him too, because he didn't, as as far as I could tell. He didn't charge Budge for, for lessons. He thought that if Budge succeeded, just living off the success of Don Budge would mean so much success to him. Is that not true? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's the case. I mean, I don't think we'd be talking about him now. Um, he would be probably still known locally as the great Berkeley coach, but, um, you know, he, he this really made his place in tennis history and that he – played such a big part in the rise of Budge's career. The changes Stowe made in Budge's grip and the change he made to how Budge attacked the ball wound up being the main keys to elevating Budge's game to world class. Now, before we get to those magical years, a quick reminder. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. And as you might imagine, research for sports forgotten heroes requires a lot of reading. And now I'm able to do research by downloading books from Audible. In fact, for you, Listeners of Sports Forgotten Heroes, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Over 180,000 titles available from history to fiction to sports and more. Give Audible a try. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh for your free audiobook. Hey, if you're like me and always on the run and want to read without carrying around a heavy book, Audible is great. Give it a try. It's free. You know, doing research for Sports Forgotten Heroes is fun. I love reading or listening to little nuggets about the heroes we focus on. And some of those nuggets are uncovered when you listen. And Marshall's book, A Terrible Splendor, is one of those books you can listen to on Audible. And one of the terms I learned that tennis fans of the day used to describe Budge was superhuman. 
and his racket had a cool name too. You know, um, another thing I read in your book, a, a term that was used, Budge was considered superhuman. His shot was heavy. It was powerful. Heck, even his racket, as you said, was too heavy for some. Tell me a little more about his racket. I'm very intrigued by the name, the Wilson Ghost. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was just because they painted it white and they called it the Ghost. It's funny, when he um, he was using it as an amateur, of course, they couldn't have his name on it. So uh, it was just painted white. It actually had a little picture of a ghost on it. And he just, he loved that racket. And uh, after 38, when he turned pro, it became the Don Budge Ghost. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was just... Um, it was just a, a heavy bludgeon, you know. I mean, my, most players just couldn't believe he was playing with that thing. And um, did he? And I, I know. I'm, I'm sure the one they marketed was not 16 ounces, you know. But he had his made heavy. Uh, I don't think anyone else played with that heavier racket. You also said that he didn't use a a he didn't tape his racket. He didn't have a grip on the racket. Yeah, yeah. How? He must have strangled that racket to keep it from slipping out of his hands. How do you go about playing the game of tennis without yeah. using any sort of leather grip or a grip of some sort on the racket? Yeah, well, he actually got this idea from uh, Bill Tilden, big Bill Tilden, who had been the greatest player in the 1920s. And he also played with no grip. Although at his time, in the 20s, I think uh, most people had no grip. I mean, at that time... Leather grips hadn't come into vogue, and people just played with the wood rack, with wooden grip. But they did have it um, grooved, so you had these lines in it to cut the, for the sweat to run away. You know, <laughs> so it had these, these tiny parallel lines grooved in the grip. And Budge just liked it that way. And uh, so even though in the '30s everyone else was using leather grips, he and also Tilden, who was playing professionally then, those two had the had the bare uh, leather grip. They just liked the feel of it. Huh. Interesting. Another important aspect to Don's game and to the rise to the top of the game was conditioning. At what point did he realize he was not in the condition he needed to be in order to consistently play championship tennis? I mean, this guy was snacking between sets. At what point yeah. did he say, you know what? I better stop this if I want to be any good. Yeah. In, uh, 1936, uh, the year he was 20, he was in the finals at Forest Hills, the U S nationals. And um, he lost a long five-setter, and uh, it was in the hot, great heat, and he was just almost sick to his stomach. He'd been eat, you know, training on Cokes and candy bars, basically. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he realized then uh, that he lost probably because he, without, he just was not in the right shape. And he vowed then he was never going to lose another match because of that. So that's when he started training. That off-season, you know, that fall after the U.S. championships, he went back to California and he started running. Doing, he got into this huge red running routine in the hills of Berkeley, and he'd just get up and run every day. And um, he really changed his, completely changed his physical condition, and uh, that definitely was great for him. As we talked about earlier, Dom was on the road to success quite early, and perhaps his youthfulness led to some interesting encounters on the courts, especially at Wimbledon, and mm -hmm. in particular with the Queen. Can you tell us about some of those encounters? Yeah, well, there's a funny story. <laughs> when he first, first year he went to Wimbledon in 36, uh, uh, at Wimbledon at that time, and I, perhaps still, I think, um, when the, well, the, the difference, I'll tell you the difference then. The, the, the rule is that when the royal family or particularly the queen would arrive the players were supposed to bow to her but the funny thing back then is that they would just arrive in the middle of a match you know <laughs> they would just play would stop and uh, everyone would rise and the royal family would walk into the royal box at Wimbledon and players were expected to stop and and bow even in the middle of a point it seems incredible now but they they would just arrive and in the middle of a point the players would just stop and you mean <laughs> the ball the could be family. in play and they would stop yeah yeah, wow. I don't know why they had to had to walk in right then, but uh, that's that's the way it was. Then. So was that an official um, do-over? Yeah, yeah, it'd be a <laughs> yeah. But um, the story goes that uh, that Budge, you know, didn't know about this, and uh, and that he the story is that he was just a young hayseed from Oakland, you know, and that when the queen arrived and everyone stood, that he waved to her, <laughs> but. Uh, Probably not quite true. I think it just looked that way. I think he just gave a very awkward 
I think he was probably just wiping his brow, to be honest. That's what people think, you know, a lot of people think now. But at the time, he was sort of famous for the young American kid who waved to the queen, and she waved back. But I think a lot of these stories um, got repeated. I don't think that's quite what happened. But that was a, you know, it was in the, it was fitting, you know, it fit with his, his image as this provincial hayseed from California. But some of the people, I think, were somewhat taken aback or insulted, but she thought it was sort of cute. Yeah, no, she wasn't insulted at all. In fact, she uh, she made some comment to him when they finally met, because when, when you win Wimbledon, the queen would present the trophy. So I believe she made some comment uh, about it when she rewarded him the trophy the next year when he won, and they had a, and they were they had a friendly attitude about it. Uh, that's 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 pretty cool. Um, his ascension to number one was very. It was strategic, well-calculated. He learned a lot of lessons along the way. And one in particular that you wrote about was he was invited to umpire a match for two great players at the time, Fred Perry and Ellsworth Vines. And not only did he umpire, but he took some, at least some mental notes. Talk about that and what he learned from doing things like that. Yeah, this is what I was referring to earlier. Um, this was, I think, between 36 and 37. He, and this was a professional match because Vines and Perry had been each been world champion as an amateur, and then they would turn pro, and the, now they were making money just playing each other. And the way they would do it then in the professional tennis was usually just a one-on-one tour. You'd go from city to city mm-hmm. play each other every night. And when they were in California, uh, they had Budge be the umpire because Budge was the one of the top amateurs. And he said later that he realized watching this match he was amazed at how uh, Ellsworth Vines and Perry I guess took the ball on the rise um, instead of waiting for the ball to come up and then down and hit it they would they would move in catch the ball right after it bounced and be very aggressive catch the ball early hit it hard and come to net and he uh, absorbed that and, and went back and started practicing that and he, he said that was the big thing that catapulted him to world champions, being able to take the ball on the rise like these great pros and be more, much more aggressive. So, so studying the game really helped yeah. him as we spoke. Yeah, he was, you know, yeah. yeah, people were more on their own then. And he was apparently very observant and, and ambitious and really was able to make some changes on his own. Yeah. So he, he's at Wimbledon in 36 and in 37, he, he wins Wimbledon and, and he wins the triple crown. He wins the singles, the doubles, the mixed doubles. How special or unique was it to win all three? Was that was that unheard of at the time? Was it a special thing? Uh, was it a goal? Tell me about how winning all three championships at Wimbledon, you know, how important, well, we know how important it was, but how special was it? Yeah, no, I think it was pretty rare and, and, and special. Uh, he did it. Um... Two years later, Bobby Riggs did it actually in '39, and he famously bet on himself to win all three. Uh, but um, <laughs> that has become a very rare thing since. I, I can't remember, you know, and I don't think anyone's done that um, in. I, I don't know. I think even after the '30s, I'm not sure I have to look that up. But it became a very rare thing. Uh, of course, nowadays they don't play all, all three. You know, it's uh, most of the top players don't even play the doubles, much less the mixed doubles. But um, I don't think even McEnroe did it. And McEnroe used to McEnroe used to play a lot of doubles, and he certainly mm-hmm. won the men's and the men's doubles, singles and doubles. And he won the mix, but I don't think he won it the same year. So uh, other than Budge and Riggs, I'm not sure who else has done that. Wow, so it is a really unique thing. The guy just had yeah. this phenomenal career. Again, i got to ask, just how good was Don Budge, especially compared to the other players he played against, and even – compared against some of the guys we watch today. Yeah, well, there's certainly no one's been more dominant than he was for their era. And I think you have to, comparing players, you got to talk about how they were in their own era because, you know, obviously the game has progressed. It's true in every sport. I mean, to compare a great champion from the 30s in any sport against today, they, they would be like, you know, I mean, the, their actual playing in any sport would be just like a small child playing today, right? right sure. <laughs> Not a small child. I'm exaggerating. But right. um, certainly no athlete from the 30s could compete against the current athlete in any sport. But you have to compare against your own time. And uh, for his era, he was absolutely 
as dominant as anyone's ever been. I mean, in 38, when he won the Grand Slam, um, I don't think he lost an, uh, a match of note, uh, any match that really counted. So a great, great player, a great athlete, and uh, certainly one of the very greatest players of all time. Was was the tour, the amateur tour, whatever you want to call it, was it somewhat similar to what we see today where they're playing week in and week out or were the tournaments more spread apart? What was tennis like back then? Yeah, they were playing. I mean, I don't think it's as – they had more of a break. Like I talked about the off season, you know, from October, November, December, but which today you don't have. They play pretty much all year, a couple, few weeks in December maybe. Um, but the rest of the year, they were playing a lot. They certainly played, you know, there was the whole, uh, you know, the whole American circuit in the summer and the European circuit in the spring. And, um, they were playing a lot of the year and it was, there, you know, almost as many tournaments. So it was a big deal. Yeah. It's definitely a year round event or year round uh, circuit. Mm -hmm. Why did he ultimately decide to turn pro? And as you had mentioned just before the pro game, looked a lot different than it does today. You were really only playing against one player traveling from city to city. It wasn't a, a, a pro circuit like we know of tennis right. today. How, yeah. why, why did he decide to turn pro? Was it strictly for the uh, money? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's a little frustrating to be the, the greatest player and not be able to make a living. And so, Others had paved the way, and and now by 1938, you know you, the top player could make a lot of money. The top couple of players, of course, there wasn't room <clears throat> for many people to make a living. Um, it really was just two, two or three guys that could make money because you know they just had these one-on-one -on -one tours. Maybe they'd have four guys that have two matches going on, but they didn't really have full tournaments. Um, so if you were if you won Wimbledon. You could make a lot of money turning pro. Um, if you were just, you know, eighth, eighth best in the world in the amateurs, you really were not going to make a living playing pro tennis. Mm -hmm. uh, so those people hung on, I think, longer in the amateur game. But for Budge, you know, he did take that extra year. He gave up a lot of money to play in 38, play amateur, and win the Davis Cup again and uh, win, win, win the Grand Slam. And I suppose in the end that probably added a lot to the money he could command Mm -hmm. in the pros so it paid off for him but he took a chance because he could have gotten hurt um and in fact he did get hurt later in the pros and well, he got hurt training in world war ii and that kind of curtailed right. his career but but he, he had a few years where he was able to make some big money and did quite well and at the time one of his biggest rivals was a guy you mentioned earlier bill tilden who was considered the greatest of all time before budge yep. came along tell yep. me about uh, tell me a little bit about bill yeah, well, Tilden was one of the great sports figures of the of the 20th century. Uh, he, throughout the 20s, he was not just the best tennis player, but by far the greatest tennis player there'd ever been. He was his name was synonymous with tennis, he, and he was one of the great, very famous sports heroes of the 20s, along with Babe Ruth and you know uh, Gene Tunney. And I mean, he, Tilden was a huge, huge name. Uh, he played amateur until he was 37, 1930, and then he went pro and, you know, played pro tennis for years. <laughs> In fact, he was really still playing when he died at the age of uh, 53 of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So he was just a but a very, very, um, very interesting and kind of tragic figure. Um, but he, uh, he was, you know, still when Budge was on top, uh, Tilden was still very, very famous as the greatest, greatest player. I like the word you use, tragic, because if you do read the book, A Terrible Splendor, Marshall talks a lot about Bill Tilden, and it's quite the interesting life. In fact, Budge's life and Gottfried von Kram, quite quite the story. And again, I'd love to have you on again in the future to talk a little bit more about uh -huh. von Kram and that phenomenal Davis Cup match. Hey, let's uh, talk a little more about Bill and Don Budge. When Don turned pro, he would go on these circuits or city-to-city -city tours or exhibitions, whatever you want to call them, and this was how they made a living. That was the pro circuit. Talk yeah. about the rivalry uh, between Don and Bill. Don had – Don probably won more, but it wasn't like he rolled over. It's not like Bill rolled over and let Don win. They were some great matches. Yeah, and uh, I think we were, <laughs> this is 1941 uh, when they went out together. So uh, Tilden was 48 years old, 
um, and Budge was what twenty five. So you know, <laughs> Budge was at that point was clearly the greatest player in the world, right at his peak. And till then, forty eight years old, going out and playing every night all over the country, still managed to beat him seven times, I think, out of fifty something or sixty something times. Um, but they always had a good match, and the fact that he could, you know, even play with him pretty evenly and beat him a few times was amazing. Tilden was just famous as this incredible, incredible athlete who played all, you know, all through his forties. He was into his fifties. He was still playing world quality, world championship tennis. Hmm. During this time, and you just referenced it as well, the world was at war and Budge served as well. And while serving, he sustained an injury that would have a huge effect on his career. What was the injury and how did he get it? Uh, it was just during basic training, I think. They were doing the um, obstacle course and he just tweaked his knee. You know, um, I'm not sure exactly what he did, but it, he hurt his knee and he's just never the same. And after that, he was uh, he was playing against Bobby Riggs uh, a couple of years. They were playing the Pro Tours together. And before the injury, Riggs really couldn't handle Budge. I mean, Budge was clearly the superior player. And um, But after that, Riggs was able to catch up to him and beat him, and uh, Budge was never quite the same again. After his playing days were over, and I, for many of the great players of the day, their lives afterwards, I don't know, they sort of seem sad. He seemed somewhat empty. Sure, Don got married, he had children, he divorced after a while. But, I don't know, something appeared to be missing. What was life like after his real competitive playing days were over? I think he bought or ran some sort of dry cleaning business. What was life like? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. But, you know, it's not it's not true that, he, that his life was sad. I think he actually had a pretty good life. Um Tilden's life turned very tragic at the end, but that, that, uh, Don Budge had a, quite a good life. I mean, I think he always had a little regret about that injury and that he could have played a few more years as, on the pros, you know, playing and staying at the top of the game. But uh, he had made a lot of money, and then he used his name, you know, as you say, in business. And uh, he also was, uh, I think, part owner of the Tritown Tennis Club in New York and, and gave some lessons and eventually moved out to Cal- back out to California uh, but no, I think he had a good life actually, and he lived a good long life. Um, okay. And was active in the tennis world throughout. I mean, they always brought him out, you know, to at tournaments to be interviewed. And uh, he was never, you know, he was never out of the game of tennis. He was always remembered in the world of tennis. And um, you know, what can you do? I mean, the athletes live right. their glory when they're young. You know. Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> but, had uh, a big name, and 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 the stars would seek him out. He'd go dine at Toot Shore and. The stars yep. would seek him out. I mean, he was a he was a celebrity. He was. It's funny because he didn't he really didn't have that big personality or anything, but he somehow always hung out with the stars and the. I guess partly being you know tennis stars were big deals in the uh, '30s, and so when he was on top of the game, a lot of the big Hollywood stars were big tennis fans. In fact, some of them came out to watch, uh, came over to Wimbledon to watch him play and to watch the Davis Cup matches. And so when he was home in California, he did hang out with the. Hollywood stars a lot, and he'd play tennis with them. and So he did have kind of a glamorous life, yeah. Uh-huh. Hey, many experts in the world of tennis still consider Don Budge to be one of the greatest players in the history of the game. They still rank him in their top ten of all time. And as you mentioned before about his backhand, they say that that backhand might have been the best ever. How does his game rank? Yeah, I mean, as I say, you got to compare it to the to your, the, the area you live in, and uh, it, he was one. Of, he was, without question, the most dominant player of his era, and that stroke was the dominant stroke of his era. So even though the game has changed so much, and no one would hit a flat ball like that anymore and play the way he played, um, anytime you talk about the all-time greats, you certainly mention Don Budge pretty quickly. How should we remember Don Budge and what made him so great? Well, he was the first to win the Grand Slam, and he'll always have that, you know. And, uh, in fact, the only other man who's ever done that is Rod Laver, who did it twice in the 60s. But uh, with all these incredible players we've had, no one has won the Grand Slam, which is winning all four majors in one year. And uh, so kind of like the 1972 Dolphins, who were the only undefeated team, <laughs> uh, Don Budge always so far, he's got that. He's the only, or rather, he's one of two men. And he's, he was the first to win the Grand Slam. He'll always be the first, anyway. 
Very cool. Marshall, thanks for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey, tell me a little bit about the book you wrote, A Terrible Splendor. And would you consider coming back to talk about one of the main characters of that book, Gottfried von Kram, another of tennis's forgotten heroes on a future edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes? Would you consider coming back? I'd be happy to come back. Yeah, A Terrible Splendor is, is, is centered around the 1937 Davis Cup final. The famous, famous match between Don Budge and Gottfried von Kram, uh, Germany against U.S. for the Davis Cup right before World War II. You have these two fascinating people, plus a third, which is Big Bill Tilden, who we've talked about, who was the greatest American player. And, for, and as uh, you'll learn if you read or if I come back, you'll learn that he was not coaching the Americans. Yeah. He was coaching the German team. And so there's just a lot of very interesting off-court uh, stuff going on around this match. And it was often called the greatest match ever, uh, in those days anyway, and, and I think because of what was at stake, you could still think of it as the greatest tennis match ever. Absolutely. Hey, Marshall, thanks again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes, and I look forward to our next conversation. Great. Thanks. It was fun. I will have Marshall back to talk about that match and the Davis Cup, a somewhat forgotten yearly international tennis championship. As for Don Budge, for his career in singles play, he won 569 matches and lost just 278. That's a winning percentage of almost 70%. He won 43 titles, including the six straight Grand Slam championships, the 1937 Wimbledon and the 1937 U.S. championships, and then the incredible year of 1938 where he won the Australian championships, French Championships, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Championships. And as a pro, he also won four majors, the 1940 and 1942 U.S. Pro on top of the 1939 Wembley Pro and the 1939 French Pro. In doubles play, Budge won four Grand Slam events, the 1936 and 1938 U.S. Championships with Gene Mako, and the 1937 and 1938 Wimbledon, also with Mako. And in mixed doubles play, Budge won Wimbledon in 1937 and 1938 with Alice Marble. And he won the 1937 U.S. Mixed Doubles Championship with Sarah Palfrey Cook. And in 1938, he won it again, this time with Marble. Incidentally, in 1936, he lost the Mixed Doubles Championship along with Palfrey Cook to Mako and Marble. Don Budge was elected into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 1964. For more information on Don, please visit sportsfh.com. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to visit with author Ralph Hickok for a look back on the career of Pro Football Hall of Famer Johnny Blood, a member of one of the first dynasty teams in NFL history, the early Green Bay Packers. That's next time. Again, thank you to today's guest, Marshall John Fisher, and thanks to you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.